This is Your Bird Story, a broadcast of bird stories told by everyday people about their interactions and relationships with wild birds in cities. I'm your host, Georgia Silvera Simeons. Well, hello and welcome back to your bird story podcast. Today I am with Monica and I'm going to ask her to introduce ourselves to listeners. Hi, Georgia. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm Monica, Monica Yadeun. I'm from Mexico City and I live here. I'm a wildlife veterinarian and my favorite patients are birds, always the birds. <laughs> I'm also a nature educator and I have a citizen science project called Guardianas de las Aves, or in English it's called Bird Protectors Collective, where I teach people how to build a habitat for birds in their yards or their roofs or their patios. And then we check which species are getting to those habitats for one year. And how long have you been working on this project? Since 2020, it's a pandemic project. <laughs> yeah. Did you launch it before the pandemic shut down? No, right in the middle. And what was the inspiration for the project? Being a veterinarian and loving birds, I felt like being a veterinarian wasn't enough because I felt like it was putting like a band-aid in the problem. Like I would always get the birds because they were already sick because the habitat wasn't there. Like the habitat was being damaged. So I was getting more and more patients. So I thought what would be a way to prevent the patients to get to me, to prevent and that way take better care of the birds. And I realized I cannot do much here in Mexico City. Like it's not like we have giant natural areas or something in the middle of the city where I could restore the habitat. So I thought, what if we start turning little unused pieces of the roofs of people or balconies or patios or even the gardens that are just purely aesthetic? They don't have any function in the ecosystem. What if we completely change how they are so that they can become habitat? And that way we could have lots and lots of people adding up so that in the end we have lots and lots of little habitats. So it started as an experiment, but it, it worked out pretty well. <laughs> so I'm really excited because we monitor the first habitats for an entire year. And at the end, we saw that we were at more than 72 species were visiting those habitats of birds and insects. And because you know how birds need insects, right, for the cheeks. So we saw, for example, that in spaces that were not intervened, we could only record four species of bees. And in the habitats with the intervention, we had up to 17. So we're really excited. And we started in Mexico City and then we expanded to other cities. And now we're also in the US and in Canada. So yeah, it's really exciting to see all of those people that first had no connection to the birds now being all like, oh, I really need to take care of the birds. <laughs> so it's been great. Yeah, four to 17. That's a significant change. Yeah. What are some of the species among the 72 species of birds that people were recording? It's 72 species of birds and insects together. It would be great if we had 72 species of birds, but it's all together. But one of the species visiting habitats, it's the American bushtit, which in Spanish is called sastrecillo, which means something like little seamstress. 
And people have no idea they exist. When people are not into birds, especially here in Mexico City, a crazy city of 20 million people, they just see the birds and they're all just birds, right? Like they cannot differentiate them. And they mostly think that uh, European sparrows are like the birds that we need to take care of. Like if they identify one, it's always gonna be the European sparrow. And I'm like, no, there's these other ones that are way cooler that are actually native from Mexico. And the Sastrecillos, the American bush tits, are one of the ones that we see a lot of these spaces and they come in little groups. So it's like, I don't know, lots of them, like at least 10. They're all very talkative, like beep, 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 beep. And they're always eating aphids. So that's great because it also shows how everything is connected. When people think of conservation, we always think of like, oh, the birds, we have to only take care of the birds and the bees, only the bees. And the aphids, we need to destroy the aphids. <laughs> so the bush tits are a great way to show that we need absolutely everything, that everything's interconnected. And then taking care of the birds involve becoming aware of these interconnections and involve become tolerant to some of these so-called pests, right? That we don't need to eradicate them, that we just need to coexist with them. So it's very beautiful because then people start actually loving the aphids, like, oh, I'm so excited. Now I have aphids. I'm waiting <laughs> for the bush tits. So it's really, it's really great. Yeah, I imagine, you know, as you say, it's a really good way to see the connections happening between birds and insects and plants, and that it's not just each living its own life, that they rely on each other. So that's really a wonderful aspect of your program that you know this, but now many others know this as well. I had every intention of being able to show you a specimen of a cedar waxwing that students and I brought the unfortunately dead bird because of a window collision to this middle school yeah. classroom and we started the specimen preparation but embarrassed to say I haven't completed it yet and I wanted to show it to you because I know it's one of your favorite North American birds and so I wonder if you could talk about favorite birds whether from North America or really anywhere in the world. Yeah, I would love to see that waxwing once it's ready. So the waxwings are one of the one I love the most because I lived in other countries like in Australia and in Canada. And in Australia, I lived for five years. And in Canada, I've only been in Canada for like one month and it already felt like home, like way more than home. And I had only been there for one month, which is crazy for everybody. But for me, it totally makes sense because it's the exact same birds that we have in Mexico. So it's like, of course, <laughs> these are my birds. And then I really like the waxwings because they were living in my city in Canada, in Edmonton, but they also migrate here to Mexico City. So I was like, oh, I'm one with the birds. We all migrate <laughs> between Mexico and Canada. So I love the waxwings because they also remind me that we're all connected. It doesn't matter if you live in Canada or in the United States or in Mexico. We all need to take care of the waxwings because they live across the three countries. So that's what I really, really like about the waxwings. And also they are so beautiful. So when people are just getting into bird watching here in Mexico, I'm like, look, these guys come all the way from Canada and then they look at it and they're so beautiful and they cannot believe that these birds live with us in this chaotic city. So I really, really, really like the waxwings. Yeah, there's something I look forward to seeing them. I mean, I know they migrate twice a year, but I really look forward to seeing them in the fall in New York City because 
a lot of the trees with fruit that ripen in the fall are where I look for cedar waxwings. And so in my neighborhood, there are a lot of hawthorns and crab apples. Mm-hmm. And those are the two species where I've observed cedar waxwings and other frugivore bird species. So it's really exciting. Plus their plumage patterns are so cool. For folks who haven't seen one, definitely look up this species. In Spanish, I don't know why. <laughs> They're called chinitos, which makes no sense because it means like little Chinese. So that's hmm. a in Spanish. Interesting. I'll do some research on the history of that and whatever I'll find, I'll link to in the show notes. You know, that even makes me think about this project that is bird names for birds. So the idea that the common name for the bird should be reflective of what the bird looks like, as opposed to, you know, like Lincoln Sparrow. Like Stellar's Jay. Stellar's Jay. Who is this Stellar? So it's nice to dive into the history of common names. So can you talk about how you came to like birds? Are you from a birding family? Was your family super into the outdoors? How did you get on this pathway? So my family is not into nature, like at all, but at all. (laughs) You know, we're from Mexico City. People don't even know that nature exists among us. But at the same time, it's thanks to my family that I became really, like, obsessed with nature. So my father is an archaeologist. And he lives in the middle of nowhere in the south of the country, almost Guatemala, because he studies the Mayan ruins there. And I'm an only child. So I would go there and, you know, the pyramids are nice at all, but it's just a bunch of stones at the end of the day. So when you're like 10 years old, you don't want to be looking at those stones for (laughs) hours and hours and hours. So while my father was really entertained talking to me about the Mayans, I would just like stone out (laughs) and start looking at all the nature around it. Because, I mean, it's... It's the most amazing forest. And I would see skunks and vultures and monkeys and parrots and insane amount of wildlife. And as I compare it to my cousins here, maybe they would have never seen, I don't know, a goat in real life. And I was in contact with all these amazing, amazing wildlife. So that's how I decided to become a veterinarian, which my family was really shocked because everyone's like from the social sciences. So they were like, what are you going to do? And also vet school like seven years. <laughs> are you crazy? I went to vet school thinking that I wanted mammals because uh, it's what I saw the most in that ruin. So it's what I felt like more close to. But when I was just in the second semester of vet school, one of my neighbors told me like, oh, my, you know, my parakeet is sick and I don't know what to do with it. And I was like, I'm not like, I'm second semester. I don't know anything, but I'll figure it out. So I realized that in my school, in Mexico City, in, in like vet school, they were starting a birth hospital uh, somewhere. It was like a storage room that they were attempting to turn into a vet clinic about birds. So I went in there and I saw, I don't know if you've seen the little incubators for birds. They look like microwaves. So it's like an entire wall covering microwaves, but the door is transparent. And you see all the little birds like really puffed up, like really, really round. I mean, poor, poor things. They are all feeling terrible, but it's just an entire wall of really, really puffed birds needing help. And it was just like love at first sight. And I never looked back. And it's always been birds. Thanks to my neighbor. 
That's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know, you know, the sort of bigger charismatic creatures maybe get a lot of love. I mean, to yeah. be honest, birds get a fair amount of love too, but there's just something about them that's so charming. And I think in part, it's what you spoke to earlier that because of their migration patterns, they connect so many places and people. Even if you don't travel yourself for whatever reason, you can imagine being in other places just by watching the birds where you are. Yeah, 100%. So I have never been to Mexico City and I haven't spent much time in Mexico, Central America, South America. And I'm curious if you could, because you have spent time in the Americas, if you could talk about the most unusual bird you've ever seen or like the most unusual birding experience you've ever had. Yeah. So I would say the most unusual bird I've seen, it's in Australia. Is that is that allowed? Because it's not in the Americas. <laughs> it only lives in Australia. If you're in Australia, it doesn't seem unusual because like it's everywhere in Eastern Australia, right? The side of Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, like it's everywhere. And it's called a bush turkey. And it's just like a smallish turkey, mostly black with a red head and like a yellow hanging thing. So it's just like a normal turkey and people don't like them because they're like super average. So it's like, ah, the bush turkey, whatever. But the bush turkeys are amazing because they are in the only family of birds that don't incubate their eggs in the traditional way birds do it. But instead they build like a pile. It's like a compost pile. They put, you know, the grass clippings and all of the other dried leaves that they can find and they build like a really, really, really big compost pile, the males. Then the females go there and then they lay their eggs in the compost pile up to 28 eggs. So it's a bunch of different females. And then it's the male that has to keep turning like the leaves to control the temperature. So even when the eggs are there, like the male has to, you know, do a little bit of work to keep the temperature just right. And those birds are like reptiles in that they, depending on the temperature of a pile, they're going to be females or males or they're, you know, going to be half and half. I just think it's amazing. When they are born, they're precocial. But as my husband says, they're mega, mega precocial because like they're completely ready and they're 100% on their own. Like they don't need their parents for anything. So they hatch. They're so cute. They're like a tiny ostrich and then they just walk there and start eating ants and they don't need water for a fair amount of time. So even though it's, if you're in Australia, it's one of the most common birds, it's one of the most unusual birds in their behavior. And that's why I like about building connections between people and the birds that live within their cities, because sometimes they don't know they exist. And sometimes they know they are there because they see them all the time. But once they learn like how amazing they are, all of a sudden the relationship changes and they're like, oh, wow, the bush turkeys are actually cool. <laughs> and they start paying more attention to them. So I really like the bush turkeys. I do miss them. It's like the one thing I really miss from Australia, it's all the birds because all of them are like super insane in terms of their evolutionary behaviors that are so different from everywhere else. I don't think I knew this bird existed and I would never have guessed at its life history. You know, I think of, as you say, 
turtles temperature modification determining the sex of the offspring and I would not have imagined that in a bird though in some ways maybe because birds are modern dinosaurs it kind of makes sense but still not really because you don't (laughs) see very many bird species with this trait Mm -hmm. so cool do you have some places on your list where you would love to go and see birds Yes, absolutely. My husband's more into let's go to this place that have this very unusual bird. Like we went to Colombia this year because it's the country with most birds. So we for sure saw some amazing birds, but at the birding in a different way, I guess. I like to do birding by moving to a different city and getting to experience the birds year round if they live there, you know, so that I could see the chicks and then I can see how they behave in the winter, all those things. I like to really feel a part of the community. Like I live here and the birds live here and we all live in the same city. So I really like that because I feel like that allows me to be closer to the birds. And so next year we're moving from Mexico City to Baja California. So I'm really excited because I've never lived in that ecosystem, which is more closer to a desert. And I really, 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 really love pelagic birds. So I'm excited that some of them visit the coast at some point. So I'm really looking forward to know more and get to know the marine birds that will be living in the same city as I will. You know, I want to also go back to your veterinary studies. Curious if that's something you'll return to. I mean, how integral is it to your current lifestyle? Do you miss it? Will you incorporate more of it as you go on? I still do it. But if it was for me, I wouldn't do it anymore because it's really tough. Like when you become a veterinarian, it's because you love animals. Like I don't know any veterinarian that decided to become a vet and doesn't love animals. And when you start, you think like, oh, it's going to be great because I'm going to study for a bunch of years and then I'm going to have all the tools to save all the animals or most of them, right? If you do dogs or cats or horses, most of your patients are going to be okay. Uh, Whereas if you do birds, it's actually quite the opposite because you know how birds, they like hide their sickness. So they look pretty good. So by the time they look sick and they get to you as a vet, it means that they're already like in really, really bad shape. And for example, my, at the end of vet school, you have to do like a long internship in a hospital. And I picked a hospital in the United States that saves birds from oil spills. So whenever there's an oil spill, you go there and you rescue the birds and you rehabilitate them. So it was six months of looking at oil birds every day. And it was just so painful. I think I'm still recovering. So that's also why now I have this citizen science project. It took me forever. Like I finished vet school and then I was like no I need something more positive (laughs) in my life and there should be a more positive like way to you know go about the birds so I started a PhD focus on how can we have a positive impact in the environment through environmental education because environmental education is a lot of what you cannot do like don't use this plastic and don't use your car and don't it's all about don't 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 what you can't do like focus on our negative impact and I was like no I can't deal with like the old birds and on top of that a negative environmental education like I need to find something positive so I did a PhD just focus on that and the result is the this program to create habitat so 
getting back to your question, I'm still a vet. Like once a week, at least someone calls me, they found the bird, they don't know what to do with it. And I take care of the bird, but it's always, you know, window collisions or I don't know, a cat harm them. It's very weird that a patient arrives because something really nice happened to it. And even if they make a recovery, it's still, you know, a constant reminder of like, oh no, there's all these birds getting hit with buildings. No one cares about it. So that's why like my program, because then I get to tell people and there's window collisions and we can do this to protect them. So they don't have like, you know, a lot of people that already know what stickers to put in their windows instead of having to deal with the birds. Last time I was in Baja, I had to deal with a pelican. It had fishing line all over it. So I had to remove it and the pelican did a full recovery. But yeah, I still do veterinary work, but I don't love it. People have really designed our spaces and the activities that we participate in. We do them irresponsibly and the impacts to other life. This can be really devastating. Sometimes it's hard to be a person in the world when you're aware of the negative impacts that humans have on other humans and certainly non-human life. Yeah. Yeah. Like all the cities are just built just thinking of humans and just some humans, as you mentioned, it's not just like which take care of humans and we pretend that all the other wildlife doesn't exist. It's also like we pretend that some of the humans don't exist in these cities. How is Mexico City in terms of laws, policies, programs that are bird friendly? Oh, no, it's extra mega terrible. Like, it's so bad. A seven hour podcast just to discuss <laughs> how bad it is. So that's also one of the things that led me to, okay, like there's no way of working with the government because, you know, the main problem is they always want results like in one year. Okay, so we're going to put like all these plans in one year. I'm like, yeah, but that doesn't work. Like we need to monitor and see, you know, if the birds are arriving. Oh, no, 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 that's two years. No, I need something faster. So they never have a long term vision, never because they're going to change and the next election is coming. And so they think in really short term, and that's completely incompatible to having, you know, a city that supports spirits. So that's why I thought preparing people like students is a great way so that everybody starts taking care of the birds. And one of the goals of this project, because I mean, it just started, right? It's 2020. But one of the goals is that as we grow and more time passes, we're going to have more and more people joining the project that are conscious about the birds. And all of us together, I feel like we could pressure the government to change the way they act. So that's like my vision for 10 years from now or something to like build a strong enough community that demands from the government. For example, a very easy change that we try to make directly with the government and we couldn't was to change lavender because they love lavender here. And the worst part is that, oh, let's save the bees, let's plant lavender. It's like, no, 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 you're saving the wrong bees. <laughs> Those are not the bees we need. Please plant native plants, but you know that it's impossible. So we're investigating this other way in which actually neighbors can adopt like a piece of land, you know, in the sidewalk or in a roundabout, and then they get to decide what plants to put in. So that's the idea. Because if I convince this government, like, do not put lavender, put Cordon de San Francisco, and then the next government comes in and they're like, nah, let's put more lavender. <laughs> like, it's not going to take me anyway. So 
So the point is to do it through the citizens. So if they know, like, we need native plants, and then they select the plants of the roundabout, and the government changes, and the government wants to put lavender, then it was our goal. I'd be like, no, the plants stay. So we call it like anti-government <laughs> projects. That the idea is that they, you know, they resist the change of government. They don't die when the government changes, but the outcome survives the change of government. Yeah. Because, you know, those residents, they have a longer tenure than government. So they'll be advocating for those changes for a while. What is it like when you go to watch birds in Mexico City? Do you have a favorite place? I do have a favorite place. Mexico City used to be a lake, right? When the Aztecs were living here, it was a lake. And then the Spanish came and they're like, oh, what's the water doing in the middle of the city? Let's, you know, try it so that we can grow some crops or whatever. So then they got rid of most of the lake. But there is a part of the lake that's still here in the side of the country. It's called Xochimilco. And you get to see most of the waterfowl migration in like January and February. You get to see pelicans and like, you know, birds that normal residents here of Mexico City have no idea that we have pelicans because they think pelicans are just brown pelicans that live by the ocean. They have no idea that the white pelicans exist, that they are bigger and that they live in our city. So whenever I take people to do bird watching, it's always like, well, not always. The best season is definitely the winter because you get to see, you know, the pelicans and the rooty dogs and all the most beautiful ducks that are full of colors and people are mega shocked that, <laughs> that they live here and that they are migratory. And it's a great way to start someone in the city into bird watching. So you talk about bringing people to this remnant lake, but how do you prefer to watch birds? Are you a loner birder or do you like to socialize while birding? I like socializing. I'm not like the very serious person that's really quiet. I mean, if it's required of me, of course. <laughs> but what I love is helping people form this connection with birds because it's great. I feel like your life is so much better when you start noticing the birds. Like you feel happy. If something's going downhill, you just remember, oh, but the, the cedar waxwings are about to come. And then all of a sudden you feel good. I feel like there's something powerful of having that connection to the birds in terms of like mental health, spiritual health. So my favorite thing about birding is to invite new people into coming. At the beginning, if I take my friends, they're like, what? I need to wake up at seven. It's not even, you know, <laughs> that late. It's late for bird watching. But I'm like, we're going to wake up at seven on a Saturday. And they're like all grumpy. And then in the car, they keep like telling me that I'm the worst friend, that they cannot believe I'm doing this to them. <laughs> and then we get there and they see the birds and they're like, what? And all of a sudden it's like 11 in the morning and they're still enjoying looking at the birds and we haven't even had breakfast. And they're like, what? I cannot believe the bird. And then all the way back, the conversation is like, okay, so I'm going to buy my binoculars. Where do you recommend I buy them? So that's my favorite way of doing bird watching to bring new people and to see how they get legit super excited for the first time. I want to leave it there, but I want to ask you, is there anything additional you'd like people to know about the benefits of bird watching or noticing nature in the city? One thing I often think about, it's birds give me hope because birds show us how resilient Earth really is. Because right now it's like 
the media is like by 2050 everything's gonna die and the world you know all the species are going to die and we're killing everybody and of course we don't have the power to like as humans to destroy the earth so if we look back you know birds are amazing because they managed to survive the asteroid right they didn't die those dinosaurs survived and become the birds and the way I see it, birds show us that the Earth has this power to continue boosting life. The birds are a daily reminder of that. So when you think like, oh no, the environmental crisis is terrible. I mean, it is, but you know, you just try to do your best and then look at the birds. I know that sometimes we feel like we as humans are the only ones trying to, mm. you know, save the Earth, but we're not. There's a lot of other species that are already doing things to adapt climate change to environmental destructions. And many of those are the birds who have already survived a massive extinction. So birds are super hopeful to me. And I like to think about Earth as an actor that boosts life. Yeah, exactly. We're not alone in this fight. It's not us against like most politicians it's the entire planet against the politicians so i think i think we can win this <laughs> well that's a hopeful note to end with we can win this i really want to thank you monica for taking the time to talk about the way you like to bird watch and the environmental education project you have that's focused on birds and that very special and unusual life history bird in uh, Australia. And thank you so much. Oh, no, thank you. I, I had a blast. I think there should be more podcasts like this. So congratulations on the podcast. I love it. Birding in the Lake of Xochimilco is an amazing experience. It's a place that connects you with the birds, but also connects you with the past of Mexico City, with other ways of being and other ways of looking at birds. When I see the white pelicans, the black crown-eyed herons, the rooty dogs, I remember a past where birds had an important role in the spirituality of the people that have inhabited this land for centuries. The Aztecs weren't even the first people to live here. Yet, for all of the people that have lived here before colonization, birds had a special meaning. Aztecs even had a word for talking to egrets, hasta Tlatoa. But the water birds are only the beginning, although a lake Xochimilco actually means field of flowers in the Nahuatl language, so it's a place with hundreds of hummingbirds. The Aztecs admire the hummingbirds not only for their colors and beauty, but also for their ferocity to defend their territory. For them, hummingbirds were the souls of the warriors that were defeated in battle. But these warriors were not always men that went to war. They could also be women that died giving birth. Today, Mexican culture holds hummingbirds as the messengers between us and our loved ones that have passed away. Unfortunately, many people are forgetting about this. That's why I love coming burning to Xochimilco and bring people with me. Because it's not only a place to look at the birds, but a place that makes us reflect on what kind of city we want to have. And that's why I work guiding people to build small bird habitats so birds like the hummingbirds can continue to call this crazy, chaotic city their home. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Your Bird Story. Like, share, subscribe, and we'll see you back here next month.